Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Um, so I've got a GPS where you can download different people's voices and they direct you around when you're driving. And the voice I've downloaded is, um, is Bonnie Tyler. And it's, it's great and everything, but, um, but it keeps telling me to turn around. And every now and then it falls apart. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a musical joke from acclaimed British rocker Jack Garrett, which is fitting because you're listening to our special all-music episode. All right. Featuring our favorite conversations with some of the world's greatest musicians. You can think of it as Coachella, Woodstock, Lollapalooza, South by Southwest, and Newport all happening inside your ears at once. Don't forget the Fire Festival, except this isn't a giant scam. Of course. I think people do want to forget that festival. <laughs> yep. uh, we have better music anyway. That's true, depending on your tastes. Although we're going to cover every imaginable genre this hour, from punk rock to classical, so we can't imagine you won't enjoy yourself. All right. And to guarantee that, let's kick things off with a little tidbit from a musician that we can't imagine anyone wouldn't be a fan of. No. The great Tony Bennett. A while back, he told us about what many consider the high point of his seven-decade career, his legendary 44-song concert at Carnegie Music Hall back in 1962. Well, Carnegie Hall is some of the greatest performances that ever happened happened in Carnegie Hall. And it was the biggest moment of my life as a young artist. And I remember with Ralph Sharon, who accompanied me, we were playing in Chicago and spent day after day trying to put the shows together. And uh, I loved it. And I loved the way it sounded. But what I found out a few years later is that I did too many songs that one night. <laughs> it's too much for the audience, you know. I, I, I finally learned what to leave out, not what to put in. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. Tony Bennett. But with all due respect to the man, for the next hour, we're going to totally ignore his advice and overload you with a cornucopia of musical greatness. We think you can handle it. Coming up on this all-music episode, we will hear songs and conversation from the likes of Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda, rock god Alice Cooper, punk goddess Viv Albertine, plus the origin story of the fifth Beatle and our vote for the most unlikely proposal song in history. And since we're suckers for musical eclecticism, next up are these guys. This would be Killer Mike and LP, a.k.a. hip-hop duo Run the Jewels. They are adored by fans and critics alike for their menacing beats and dexterous wordplay. Since forming a few years back, they've released three acclaimed albums, plus a remix album in which they used only the sounds of purring, meowing cats for beats. It's true. I spoke with them a while back, and I asked them why they mix political messages with ridiculous humor. You know, honestly, the best, sometimes it's just easiest that way. You know, we got to, if you want hard news that hurts, you can watch the news in the morning or afternoon, you know, if you want something that's just going to make you sad. But I think that comedians have done a great job at telling some really hard truths in a way that people can, you know, laugh at, laugh with one another and endure and push through the next day. And I think that our music um, follows a Carlin. It follows a Bill Hicks. Like Bill Hicks. You know, it's, it's, it's as honest and raw as a prior, you know. Mm. And it has a level of depth to it because all humans do. You know, humans are, are, you know, emotionally, man, it goes deep. And I think that we just are unafraid to acknowledge it. 
in the same spectrum of saying something incredibly machismo and stupid, you know. Mm. It makes me making music easier, you know. There's you don't have magic. to marry yourself to a character you build. Right. There's a magic to being able to be everything that you are on a record. Yeah. Another th- part of this is, you know, I think people take heart in the way that you guys from two different backgrounds mesh. You know, L, you're from Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, for our radio audience, you're, you're a white kid from Brooklyn. Mm. And Mike, you are a black kid from Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah. And you, and you guys mesh. And, uh, you know, there's clearly such a creative energy and friendship between you two. It comes across in your music. I imagine that people look to you as role models, and, and I'm wondering how that feels. As long as you understand role models are going to do stupid stuff and mess up and... <laughs> Really what makes you a role model is being able to sit back down and be like, you know what, I messed up. That's why I respect, you know, my, my grandparents because they, you know, when they were raising us, they said, hey, I shot at your grandfather when we were younger because he came home with his underwear on backwards, you know. And maybe I wouldn't shoot at him again, but, you know, it's it's just that, you know, you have to understand that role models are not superheroes. We're, we're not perfect. But we're very aware that there's something symbolic and something real that can get passed on from that and I think that mm. there's there's not a whole lot that's not contrived there's, there's, there's nothing that we really have to say about it there's something inarguable and unstoppable about love and friendship and when that's there and when people can see that that's genuine it knocks away and 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 pacifies a lot of the complications and the arguments that we all tend to tend to kind mm. of throw about at each other because we don't understand each other you was preaching then boy thank you mm. Like, that's as close yeah. I've heard, like, to a white person just catching the Holy Ghost. That's no, I wasn't that excited. <laughs> no, nah, it was good. It meant something. To me, it did. Thank you. It means a lot to me, let me say. Amen. All right. Well, I need you to both preach a little more because we have two standard questions we ask our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? You, you, cannot, you, cannot, you cannot ask us what we think of other rappers or the current state of hip-hop. Exactly. Don't ask us about the state of hip hop. Hip hop isn't your weird cousin that's been <laughs> that's addicted to drugs that don't you have to ask, check yeah. up on every once in a while. Exactly. I don't know what the state of hip hop is. I just make rap records. I'm not a sociologist. Our second question is: uh, Tell us something we don't know, and this is something that you guys haven't shared in an interview before, or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Uh, you don't know whether or not there's a god. <laughs> ah, that's a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> so don't try and tell me either way. All right, but wait, uh, Mike, am I wrong? Are you are you religious? No. Uh, what what you yeah what you had what you see me doing is I, do, I oftentimes my music I talk about morality and and stuff like that and I use the Bible and stuff like that as a reference because I was raised in a Christian household and I studied religion in college but I'm probably the most unreligious guy that <laughs> you'll know I would be the guy who'd probably say it's nothing after we got it, it's over Mike is pretty much the atheist of the crew <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> much I'm pretty much the guy who actually might believe in God but my aunt's gonna call me you just got me cursed out thank you very much my aunt's gonna call <laughs> what do you mean your grandma rolling over in a grave you don't believe in Jesus I'm grandma like, you're oh, not gonna uh, listen to what that white man said about it's, me it's exactly the line I'm going with <laughs> like you let them white people Confuse you, I'm going straight to it. I love El, but he's a <laughs> devil. Killer Mike and LP of Run the Jewels. 
They're on tour now, supporting their third album, which is ingeniously titled Run the Jewels 3. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, people. And as regular listeners know, on this show, we often ask musicians to give us a soundtrack of sorts, namely a playlist of songs they would spin during a dinner party. And it seems only appropriate we do that again for this all-music episode. So we brought in Joan Shelley to DJ. That's right. Critics have praised her poetic lyrics and minimalist approach to Appalachian folk music. She caught the attention of Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, who produced her latest album. Here she is to set the vibe for an alfresco gathering. Hi, I'm Joan Shelley. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm going to be sharing with you my dinner party soundtrack. My best dinner party would be everyone gets in the car and we're headed out of town. And from around here, it would be the Red River Gorge. This is like the Grand Canyon of the top of the south. And it's beautiful and green. That would be ideal. So if you're in my car, I would be putting on Roger Miller's My Uncle Used to Love Me But She Died. My uncle used to love me but she died. The chicken ain't chicken till it's looking good fried. Keep on the sunny side. My uncle used to love me but she died. Roger Miller's writing is just so great because it's so free. I've seen people, it comes on, eventually they start paying attention because he just like is asking for attention. He's like your crazy kid in the back of the car who's been annoying, but then suddenly you realize they're doing something brilliant. <laughs> Hamburger, cup of coffee, lettuce and tomato, two times a dime to see a man kiss the alligator, one more time around three on the Ferris wheel ride. There's something about that that's like, yes, we're having a party. It's the perfect kind of wild song with a great feel, and I think the perfect escape. So one of my favorite parts about doing this kind of cabin in the woods camping, you rent one of these cabins, is opening up the cars and dogs and instruments are kind of tumbling out, tennis balls. Maybe this is the time you would make a cocktail. Someone's cutting up vegetables, and there's like this beautiful moment where you figure out the stereo, and someone would play a song here. The spirit of that kind of getting together and creating the meal, I think, would be really wonderful for a Michael Hurley moment. Oh, I sing a six pack, I want one. Would you bring it over here? Oh, I see the six pack. It's called Slurf Song. And I don't know what slurf actually is, but it's spelled S-L-U-R-F. Bring it over here. A really sweet little song, kind of about hosting a dinner party. I'm very literal here, I realize now. <laughs> a big sack of oysters, their molecules will soon become A big sack of oysters, their molecules will soon become I think that kind of evening light, maybe making dinner with friends, he captures that like lovey-dovey, relaxed feeling very well. So everyone's full and they're talked out and content. You're starting to maybe make that second round of cocktails and do some dishes together and move around and maybe get into trouble. And uh, that's when I would put on Irma Thomas. You can keep your sweet top, keep your life. Irma Thomas is my absolute favorite voice for the evening. Aside from her voice, the song, You Ain't Hitting on Nothing, has got one of the most radical guitar solos I absolutely love. 
so simple and perfect. I never heard of her. Growing up, I fell for Aretha Franklin and some of the other great gospel singers. I think I heard her first on a, a mixed tape, Women of Soul or something. And then later I came back to it, just out of curiosity, looked the rest of her songs up, and I could listen to all of them. She's just, yeah, an outstanding voice. Late at the end of the night, everyone's partied out. They're sitting in a circle, maybe, passing the guitar. Maybe around a fire, under the stars, it's clear, there's no lights. I have done what I normally do, which is sneak off to bed, because that's my favorite thing. There's still some music, they're just playing it themselves. Fiddle tunes and banjo tunes and as many long ballad songs as anyone can remember. And maybe they pass the guitar to where I was sitting before <laughs> they find out that I've snuck off to bed. And so because my friends are sweet and supportive, someone decides to go put on a song of mine. In your it's all centered around you. We've got Jeff Tweedy's little bendy guitar things that are just really lovely and disorienting, the way you need to get disoriented sometimes. I do like including on every album uh, more of like a lullaby or a, a kind of moment of breath and rest. This is how I would come down from other heights. <laughs> Am I Party soundtrack from Joan Shelley. Her self-titled album just came out. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. But coming up, shock rock legend Alice Cooper explains why his music's message is often misunderstood. I am not politically incorrect. I'm politically incoherent. Sounds familiar when this all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Here's Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tony-winning star and creator of Broadway's Hamilton, telling me about the night he learned to improvise rap lyrics, a.k.a. freestyling. I very distinctly remember this one road trip my college roommates and I took. We, we drove to Vegas and back in a week, which I don't recommend to anyone. Uh, we had to get back because we were all in a play. It's <laughs> from New York, I'm assuming. This is from Connecticut, yeah, from Connecticut to Vegas and back. And I caught the Kansas 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. driving shift. And no disrespect to Kansas, but at night, it's flat and there's nothing to see. There's nothing to keep you awake. It's like gas station, gas station, farm, gas station, gas station, farm. And everyone else in the car was asleep. And I remember from 1 to 5 a.m. just popping in a tape of instrumental beats, drinking 
four Red Bulls and rapping to myself. And when the sun came up that morning, I was pretty good at freestyling because I had gone through some wormhole. And immigrants, we get the job done. This is so fun. POTUS is holding up the signs. I'm not done. It's the Oval Office. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm there. It's so much more intimidating than if it was square. And this, of course, is Lynn freestyling last year for President Obama at the White House. So that road trip kind of paid off. It certainly did. And people, we are in the midst of our annual All Music episode featuring conversations old and new with and about great musicians. In a few minutes, shock rocker Alice Cooper tells us about the time Groucho Marx and Paul McCartney shared a bed. No lie. True story. But first, some earlier Beatles history. That's right, and it comes from Vivek J. Tawari. He produced the Broadway hit American Idiot, then went on to win an Eisner Award for his best-selling graphic novel about the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. He told us a story that didn't make it into the book. Hi, my name is Vivek J. Tawari, and I'm the author of the graphic novel The Fifth Beatle, The Brian Epstein Story. And I'm here to tell you about how the Beatles almost didn't make it to the United States and the two nice Jewish boys who saved them. So it's an average day for Brian Epstein in the early 1960s. He starts his day working in his family's furniture store in the record section of that furniture store because in those days, uh, people came to furniture stores to buy their record players because they were large pieces of furniture, putting in his hours there, then taking some time off to promote the Beatles, who he has recently gotten signed after every single label in the industry passed on them. But they had reached a bit of a standstill, and Brian's next ambition for them was to bring them over to the United States, which was unheard of. A British band had never made an impact in the United States before, but he believed that the Beatles were going to be bigger than Elvis, that it would be a worldwide sensation. These days were tough for Brian. He was gay at a time where it was literally against the law to be homosexual. He was Jewish at a time where anti-Semitism was rampant in the country. I know it might sound strange in a modern perspective, but Jewish people just didn't work in the music industry. The music industry was run by people like Sir Lou Grade and, you know, old white knights of the British Empire. So literally, here was this gay Jewish man running around Liverpool saying, I found a local band and they're going to be bigger than Elvis. Uh, It was rather ludicrous, and people uh, accordingly laughed at him and thought that he was crazy, and people like him didn't enter fields like that. So he would come home, you know, relatively dejected and uh, would have dinner with his family. He was living at home uh, with his mother and his father and his younger brother. Brian Epstein was in his 20s then, so he was a very young man. Thousands of miles away from Brian Epstein, there was another young Jewish man in New York City also hustling his way around the music industry, and this was Sid Bernstein. And Sid had caught wind of the Beatles and saw in them the same thing that Brian did, and he thought, this might be my big break if I could bring this band over to the United States. So Sid tracked down a phone number and called. And the person who picked up the phone was Brian's mother, Malka Epstein. Malka is Hebrew for queen, and she went by the nickname Queenie. He said, hi, my name is Sid Bernstein. You don't know me. I'm calling from New York City, and I'd like to bring your son's band over to the United States. So here's the thing. People in Liverpool, colloquially known as Scousers, are very well known for mastering the art of taking the piss, as they say, which basically means being pranksters. And so Queenie was certain that this phone call was a prank. 
Sid very quickly realized who he was talking to and thought to himself, I know how to charm a Jewish mother. And so he answered her questions quite humbly and respectfully. But nevertheless, she just didn't believe that someone calling from New York City by the name of Sid Bernstein was interested in bringing her son's local band over to the United States. But she finally decided, you know what? I'm still not sure I believe you, but you sound like a nice Jewish boy. So I'll put you on the phone with Brian. Up here in America, here are the Beatles. So as the result of one feisty but supportive Jewish mother, a year later the world got its first outdoor stadium concert in the Beatles at Shea Stadium, uh, promoted by Sid Bernstein and arranged by Brian Epstein. Vivek Tiwari, author of the graphic novel The Fifth Beetle, is currently turning it into a TV series. Mm -hmm. And next up on this all-music episode, let's take you one degree closer to the Beatles with the help of Alice Cooper. That's right. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famer pioneered what came to be called shock rock, lacing his live shows with real pythons, fake electrocutions, and all manner of horror movie imagery. During the 70s, he formed the celebrity drinking club known as the Hollywood Vampires, regularly hoisting more than a few with the likes of Keith Moon, Harry Nielsen, Ringo Starr, and the occasional member John Lennon. One of Cooper's biggest musical inspirations was the Beatles. We asked him who he got along with better in real life, McCartney or Lennon? Well, I was, you know, one guy, John was the guy that, that tried to always get me into politics. And I told him, I am not politically incorrect. I'm politically incoherent. <laughs> I hate <laughs> politics with every ounce. I said, politics and rock and roll don't belong together. And that was the argument right there, you know, because he believed mm-hmm. that the voice of rock and roll was political. And I said, no, it's entertainment. But I mean, his thing was arguing with Harry Nielsen because he had one Irishman and one Englishman. <laughs> And they would, the more they drank, one would say black, one would say white, one would say <laughs> de- Democrat, one would say Republican. Yeah. And then I was in the middle going, guys, guys, yeah. sit down. Let's just have a beer, for God's sake. <laughs> what, so does, you by, were like the CNN. They were like MSNBC and Fox. I was. I was, <laughs> I was the moderator between these two. And you share the same last name as Anderson Cooper, so that makes sense. That's yeah, there's A. Cooper. Me and A. Cooper have a lot in... Wait a minute. No, we don't. No. <laughs> you wear less makeup, Alice. Yeah, well, sometimes. But as a less political guy, can we take that as saying that then you're more of a Paul McCartney guy? Yeah, McCartney was much more of a fun guy. I sent Paul McCartney one time. I went to his house in Scotland, and he had this. He was building this great big room that was a meditation room. It was a big round room. Hmm. Hmm. And I just happened to have this gigantic round bed that Groucho Marx gave me, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so I said, what? I have a gift for you, Paul. I sent this bed to him, and the, the note with it said, neither one of us had any luck with this bed. Good luck. <laughs> and so he says he still has it in the house. But wait, can we just take a step back, though? Are you saying that Paul McCartney has Groucho Marx's know, bed in his meditation room? Yeah. Who, who could get it next? Kanye? Like the Jesus, yeah, like, some, it's the most Somebody's going to get it. Yeah. I think it has to be Kanye. Whoever gets that bed in the end is going to really have a great keepsake. There's a lot of legends <laughs> going through that bed. Yeah. I read about this friendship you have with Groucho Marx. Talk about that. That sounds outrageous from the outside. Well, How Groucho, did you become friends with him? Groucho came to see one of our shows, and he mm-hmm. says, Alice is the last hope for vaudeville. Of and, course. But, which was absolutely right. I mean, yeah. it was like the, probably the most correct description of our show because it, it was sort of a horror vaudeville kind of show. Mm-hmm. But he would bring George Burns, Jack Benny. Oh, my God. Uh, and then the next night, yeah, he would bring Mae West and Fred Astaire. <laughs> 
Oh, oh yeah. You know, they'd be standing in the sides of the stage. They wouldn't be on the front. So they didn't get blood on no, them. They, no, they, but, you know, George Burns would say, uh, Gracie and I played Toledo, uh, you know, 1923. We saw the guy do the guillotine like that. He didn't use the snake, but he used it, you know. Wow. And they were not in the least bit shocked by anything that I did. Were you aware that there was maybe this kind of tradition when you were assembling the show? Was that where you were well, after? I've always been a bit of a vaudevillain. The idea of us being a sideshow, I, I connected with those guys. In fact, yeah. there were bits that from Hell's a Poppin' and movies like that that I said, well, we should use that in the show. You know, Fred Astaire saw the dancing skeletons we had that disappeared and appeared, and he goes, that's great. He said, that's, we should have used that. <laughs> oh, man. You couldn't have had a better compliment than that for us. You know? And Jack, Benny, Jack Benny's going, Alice. Everything I pick up has got your picture on it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I understand Jack Benny being there because he was never over 35. So yeah. uh, well, he, that's, was, he was that's always it. a young man. But, you know, it's funny. Like Even May, even May West, though. May West, literally, we did a movie with May West called Sextet. It was Keith Moon and Ringo and myself. Oh, yeah. The worst movie of all time. But at one point, she'd say, why don't you come back to my trailer? Wow. No. And I said, well, because you're 89, and I don't know if you're a woman. <laughs> and she says, oh, I'm all woman. Regardless of her age, that's an honor to yeah. be hit on by oh, Mae well, West. That's amazing. But then I found out she hit on every single guy in the cast. Good for her. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't singular at all. <laughs> I, I do, I'm going to make a tenuous, crazy connection here. Your given a middle name is Damon, right? Yeah. Your name after Damon Runyon. Right. And Damon Runyon wrote about, you know, the yeah. Guys and Dolls, the musical was based on Damon Runyon's stories. Absolutely. There was tons of Guys and Dolls in our shows. We, we used parts of that, parts of West Side Story. There was all those things that showed up in the Alice Cooper shows. And yet I remember in the 70s, you were seen as the end of culture. And yet you're like basically taking all of these aspects of beloved culture of the past. Oh, absolutely. Did that upset you at the time? It's kind of like, listen, you guys, I'm part of a tradition here. No, no, no. I mean, to just about every parent in America, we were indescribable. They didn't quite get the humor of it yet. You know, mm. the, I was getting like, Ann Landers was like all over me for a song called Cold Ethel, which was a song about necrophilia, right? But it was funny. It was a funny song. And I, and I finally wrote her back and I said, Ann, if there's a rash of necrophilia going on because of this song, I will apologize. But I said, everybody's laughing except you. Alice Cooper, he is on a world tour right now. And people, there's so much more great stuff in that interview, we actually feel bad playing just a piece of it. It's terrible. So please absolve us of guilt by checking out the whole thing on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. A few years back, we learned about a largely unheralded Russian writer working in the early 1900s. His name was... All right, let's give it a try. Zygismund Krzyzhanovsky. Impressive. Thank you. Spasiba. His surreal, playful stories have only recently been translated into English. One of his biggest champions is critic Liesl Schillinger. For this all-music episode, let's overhear her read an excerpt from his tuneful story, The Runaway Fingers. 2,000 ears turned towards the pianist Heinrich Dorn as he calmly adjusted the wicker seat of his swivel chair with long, white fingers. The tails of his dress coat hung down from the chair, while his fingers leapt onto the piano's black case and cantered down the straight road paved with ivory keys. 
Polished nails flashing, they first set off from a high octave C to the treble's last glassily tinkling keys. The fingers wanted to go farther. They stamped distinctly and fractionally on the last two keys. Eyes here and there in the hall narrowed. What a trill! The fingers then spun around on their tapered ends and leaping over one another began galloping back. Two thousand oracles leaned toward the stage. A familiar nervous trembling seized the fingers. They suddenly, in one violent bound, catapulted across twelve keys, coming to rest on C, E-sharp, G-B. Pause. And again, the fingers raced away in a rapid passage toward the end of the keyboard. The pianist's right hand made to pull back, but its galloping fingers refused. On they flew at breakneck speed. The quarter octave's glassy tinkles flashed past, the treble's auxiliary keys squeaked. With a desperate tug, the fingers suddenly wrenched themselves free, hand and all, from the pianist's cuff, and jumped down onto the floor. The parquet's waxed wood struck their joints a painful blow, but the fingers, without missing a beat, picked themselves up and, mincing along on their pink shields of nails, vaulting high into the air with great arpeggio-like leaps, haired toward the hall's exit. There wasn't a minute to lose. All about them, people were beginning to whisper. The whispers became murmurs, the murmurs a hubbub, the hubbub an outcry, and the outcry the roar and riot of a thousand feet. Catch them! Catch them! Other members of the audience rushed up to the pianist. He was slumped on his chair in a deep faint, his left hand flopped on his knee. The empty cuff of his right still lay on the keyboard. But the runaway fingers had no time for Dorn. They were sprinting prestissimo down a Turkish runner toward the brow of the stairs. With wails and squeals, elbows elbowing elbows, people scrambled out of the way. In one masterly bound, the fingers sailed over the threshold and out onto the street. The riot and racket broke off. The blank, benighted square, wreathed in a yellow necklace of lamplights, gaped in silence. Critic Liesel Schillinger reading from the story The Runaway Fingers. You'll find it in Zygismund Krzyzewski's collection, Autobiography of a Corpse. Well done again. Thanks. And we're going to take a quick break. (laughs) Coming up, more musical mayhem as Viv Albertine remembers her days as one of the original London punks when this all-music dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Here's Kristen Bell, star of the Disney musical phenomena Frozen, about the music she obsessed over as a kid. I think it was The Little Mermaid. Mm. I was very into The Little Mermaid. Mm. Yeah, it came out around 89. I was prime time for that. I also really liked Aladdin. But really all those movies. Growing up, I was obsessed with Disney animation, and I dreamed of being a part of it, that was kind of like the first thing on my bucket list when I was six or seven years old. Mm. And I used, I remember like having my old boom box and 
like putting Little Mermaid on in the background so I could hear the orchestration and pressing record and singing all of her songs into the boombox. I don't, I didn't really know why. And then of course, the, my friends in high school found those tapes and, you know, embarrassment ensued. <laughs> Look at this stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? Kristen Bell, the lesson being, always destroy the evidence. <laughs> That's right. Cassette tapes are conveniently flammable, everybody. Mm. And folks who are joining us in the midst of our all-music episode, featuring some of our favorite musical moments from shows gone by. In just a second, we will hear from punk legend Viv Albertine. But first, we got another celebrity DJ on hand. That's right, namely Mike Hadreas, also known as Perfume Genius. The Seattle musician has earned a reputation for painfully personal songs built around emotional lyrics delivered in his sometimes quavering voice. Here he is with the party playlist that includes a space for the supernatural. Hi, it's Mike from Perfume Genius, and I picked a few songs for a dinner party. Uh, The first song I was going to do is called Bodies in Trouble. It's by an artist called Mary Margaret O'Hara. She's Canadian. She released one album in 1998 called Miss America. And I don't really get as obsessed with music as I used to when I was a teenager, but this song I heard recently and listened to it over and over for weeks, and I ended up covering it in my set. I just want to push somebody. Nobody won't let you. Just want to move somebody. Nobody won't let you want to. I suppose it's kind of easy listening-ish. But there's a really weird, subversive part to it. The way that she sings, she kind of sings around all the instruments and around and off of the beats, and the things she picks to do are very unexpected. Well, her version's very free and um, seemingly light, but of course I do it very dark and um, very deadly serious. I really amp up some of the lyrics that, you know, I twist them in to make them a little more disturbing and personal, as I tend to do. The second song I picked is by Nina Simone. It's called Ain't Got No. I ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class. Well, this I mean, I'm going to get real serious for a second, but I first heard this song after a particularly rough night, and I was in sort of a strange sleeping arrangement with someone I didn't know very well, was not able to sleep. But he had this record in his room, and I ended up playing it over and over for like five hours. Ain't got no love, ain't got no name. It's always a comfort to me, this song. I mean, this song's essentially about how you don't need anything but yourself. You know, I still very much kind of rely on external things to reassure me and make me feel good. And this song is essentially saying all you need is you. Got my hair, got my head, got my brains, got my ears, got my eyes, got my nose, got my mouth. I have, like, with my boyfriend, I always kind of sit him down and make him listen to songs. If he doesn't invest in them as seriously as I do, I get frustrated. (laughs) So I picked this song because I think since I have such a strong personal relationship with it, I wouldn't need other people to have the same amount of reverence during um, a burger or whatever. I've got life. 
for my third song, I really want to take it there. I'm going to take it there with something a little more weird. And this song is I Have Walked This Body by Susanna and Jenny Haval. It just came out a few months ago, but it's super intense and real spiritual sounding and loud and droney, but very beautiful. first lines, I have walked this body to the rim of its end. It sounds like somebody maxing out their body until they physically they just leave it. That's what I took from it. Because I would like, like if I was having a dinner party, eventually I would want it to get real occulty. You know what I mean? Like we're all there, like around a table, we might as well do some kind of ritual or have some kind of out of body experience. For my own song, I probably pick Queen, which is the first single off my new album. A very defiant song. I wrote it as much for me as I did for other people, hoping it would be kind of empowering to hear someone talk about how they're going to shake off the sort of victim-y outlook that they have on the world. Essentially saying that you can say all you want about me on the street as long as you back up and let me through. <laughs> A dinner party soundtrack from Mike Hadreas, a.k.a. Perfume Genius. His new album, No Shape, came out this week. In mid-70s Britain, a bunch of kids who called themselves punks started bashing out sometimes primitive but literally revolutionary rock music, changing the face of the pop and fashion industries in the process and sometimes making themselves the targets of derision and violence, and at the center of it all was guitarist Viv Albertine. She formed the band The Flowers of Romance with Sid Vicious, dated Mick Jones of The Clash, and achieved rock legend status when she joined one of the rare female-led groups of the era, The Slits. Here's their signature feminist tune, Typical Girls. memoir, Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. Viv recalls her first exposure to rock music, the Beatles song, You Can't Do That. I asked if she'd had as electric a response to a song since. I don't think I've ever had it as strongly as I did that day, actually, you know, and it seems so young, especially, you know, looking back to the, what was the 60s, I suppose, when young girls and boys weren't as developed as they are now and so into music. No one, no one heard music much, not much on the TV. So to have heard that record at my babysitter's house was, it was like a portal to another world. And I was so grateful <laughs> that there was another world yeah. out there. I was, I was deathly bored with my life. We, you know, we were poor. There was no sort of culture in the home. Food was ugly and brown and watery. <laughs> <laughs> and to have these screaming boys, yeah. you know, it was, it, it was electrifying. Do you still get that feeling when you hear that song? I do when I hear that song. I, I don't so much when I hear contemporary 
music so much, you know, very, very rarely. I mean, I was, I was in um, a beautiful cake shop the other day and I heard this record and I thought, oh my God, you know, this is a lovely, poignant solo voice, you know, a girl singing and there's something really moving me. At last I'm being moved by modern music. And I listened really hard and it was Neil Young. <laughs> It wasn't a girl at all. You do write. I mean, I was going to ask you this later, but there's a quote in the book that is, because I grew up with music that was trying to change the world, that's what I still expect from it. Yeah. Is there any music that does that for you? Not first world music, not not Western world music, really. Because the thing is, the world has changed for us. uh, And... I think young people are more educated, more intelligent, possibly, well, worldly, and and there isn't the need to kick down the doors like we had to back then to be heard. I mean, young people back then had nothing in England. I mean, Britain, we had nothing on TV, no youth television, no youth culture. No one was interested in you if you were poor and young. On top of that, you had no expectations. And the only good thing about that was that you were kind of invisible or at least ignored. So they sort of didn't notice us getting up to quite so much trouble until it was too late <laughs> but um music being it's, it's probably it's gone back down to entertainment for a while i think well let's go back to the 70s where you are doing kind of the extraordinary you're you're playing in punk bands at a time when being in a band is still a pretty outsidery thing to do and women certainly didn't join rock bands and punks were hated by most of english society of all of those obstacles, you had a lot of them. Maybe, which was the toughest to overcome? Um, no, I think the toughest was the peer group, really, because we were so hard on each other. Uh, you know, every any time you, yeah, you wrote a lyric or you, you wrote, wrote a riff or you dressed in a certain way or you held hands with your boyfriend, everything we did, your records in your record collection, was torn to pieces by the rest of the pack. Um, you had to justify everything you did and you had to know how to sort of stand up for yourself and defend yourself and your choices. And it was just really uncomfortable. It wasn't happy-go-lucky time. It was a really, really strict time. And we were strict about everything, the cut of the clothes, the colour of the clothes. So I think that was the hardest thing. We, we got attacked and stabbed and abused, but... We were so convinced we were on the right track and had a mission that we just thought other people were fools. But <laughs> our own peer group mattered a lot to us. But they were we were all very, very tough on each other. And that was quite uncomfortable, actually. Give me maybe the most outstanding example of kind of being judged on your, I don't know, punk, <laughs> well, whether you were a poser or a punk, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the ter- most terrible things you could call the other person either, were either a poser or a careerist. <laughs> But um, everything was very strict. I mean, I remember Sid teaching me about the width of collars on on suits and jackets, which were acceptable and not acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I remember when um, Chrissy Hind answered a question that Vivian Westwood asked her with, oh, I don't know, I just go with the flow and Vivian wouldn't speak to her again for a year for such a woolly answer. (laughs) There is no flow. There are rules. Is that the idea? Yeah, there was no flow. That was that was hippie-ish. That was wishy-washy. That was not ha- knowing your stance, which side of the you know bed you came down on, kind of thing. You had to know where you stood in life. You had to be able to stand up for it. Actually, in a way, you could almost have any opinion as long as you could argue it. <laughs> but yeah, going with the flow was weak. Um, I should say that this book took me longer to read than it should have because I kept stopping to go on YouTube and watch videos of all the bands you mentioned. (laughs) And at one point you talk about seeing a young David Bowie. And I'm watching Mm. this amazing video of him playing live in, I think, 1973 or something. And halfway down the comment section, someone wrote, those hot girls in the audience are all our mothers. (laughs) (laughs) 
which that's true which feels like a lame thing to say on a lot of levels yeah. but it did make me wonder looking back on this life which which was extreme in so many ways how do you look at yourself now as a grown up well you know in a way sort of writing the book reflected back to me that i can still think the way i used to think i you know and anyone can still be that youthful person they were with the, with those morals and those dreams it has to mutate a bit maybe you don't shout and swear and spit on the pavement anymore but i still feel the spirit of punk is in that book in the style of the writing mm. in the way i've lived my life you know i've i've taken chances all the way through my life i did try and conform somewhere in the middle there went horribly wrong but i am ultimately still that person and a lot of sort of older people who've read the book have found that as well it sort of reaffirmed to them no i can still be that person and younger people who read it are just so jealous <laughs> Viv Albertine, she is indeed still punk at heart. You are listening to one of her recent solo tunes, and it totally rages. Her memoir does too. It's called Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. All right, and that's kind of the end of our set list for this all-music show. So consider this the encore, a story from comedian Josh Gondelman. Oh, yeah. He recently won an Emmy for his writing on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Here he is to explain how a song he detests came to define his life. Hi, my name is Josh Gondelman. I have a new album out of stand-up comedy called Physical Whisper, and I want to tell you the story about how I knew my girlfriend was the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. So it was the day of my grandmother's funeral, and it was a very Massachusetts funeral in a lot of ways. Like, my grandmother was cremated in a Tom Brady jersey, which is not conventional for Jews, first of all, but also that's a real fan. And when I heard that she was cremated in that jersey, I started to cry because I'd spent like $100 on that jersey. Plus, the playoffs were coming up, and we can't have that kind of karma going into the postseason, just burning team paraphernalia. I, like, I don't know if that's what Nana would have wanted. We spent the afternoon at my parents' house sitting shiva, which is the Jewish custom of spending the day and days after with relatives and family members and family friends And there's a lot of smoked fish and a lot of kind reminiscing. And my girlfriend was there, and she was meeting a lot of people that she'd never met. And even when you're within that circle, it's uh, an emotionally grueling day. And from without it, you're just being bombarded with new people. And she was a real champ about it. When the day kind of came to an end, we borrowed my mom's car. And we decided to go into the city and see some of our friends. And we turned on the radio, and in Boston, terrestrial radio is abysmal. It goes up to like 1997, then skips forward abruptly to that one Dropkick Murphy song from the Departed soundtrack, and then stops forever. It's a wasteland. And so the first song that we hear when we turn on the radio is Caress Me Down by Sublime, which is a very bad song. Sublime as a band is like a blacklight Che Guevara poster that you listen to. That's their whole vibe. And Caress Me Down is specifically a bad song. So it's a story in two languages. And that story is a man and a woman have a very explicit romantic encounter, and then they have it again in Spanish. And then the Spanish time she gets pregnant. And I don't know if that's racist, but it feels racist to me. So we're driving, I'm driving, and my girlfriend starts singing along super loud to caress me down. 
She's like, when I see Maxi, makes me feel horny. Which, horny, my goodness, that's not a word you put in a love song. If that's something you include in your draft, delete it. Start fresh. It's not a song lyric. It's just something you put in a text message next to an eggplant emoji. We all know that. She keeps going. Cause I'm the type of lover with the sensitivity. Kiss me neck and tickle me fancy. Kiss my neck and tickle me fancy. Tickle me fancy? What are you talking about? Are you a pirate? So we get into the city. We see some friends. Old friends of mine from Boston. We have a nice time. It really kind of lightens the psychic load of the day. We have a couple drinks. No more than the legal limit. We get back in the car to head back to the suburbs, and we turn on the radio, and the first song we hear is Caress Me Down by Sublime again. And at that point, I don't know what happened. I don't know whether we angered a wizard or some kind of curse has been levied against us, but there is no reason to hear that song twice ever from now on, never mind twice in one night in this decade. So this time, it's the Spanish part of the song, and my girlfriend doesn't know any of the Spanish lyrics. So instead of singing, she's just doing this dance where she's shaking her fists in my face like I just denied her a mortgage or something. So we get back to my parents' house, and we go up the stairs to my childhood bedroom, where we're staying in two twin beds pushed together like a couple from a 50s sitcom that almost figured out how to make love to one another despite already having three children. We get into bed... And it's, it's so late, and I'm so tired, physically tired, emotionally exhausted, and I can only imagine what she's feeling. And just as I'm about to go to sleep, my girlfriend murmurs so gently, so sweetly, Josh, kiss my neck. And I say, of, of course, anything you want in the whole world. You've been so wonderful to me this day and throughout our entire relationship, You've been such a source of strength and support and love, and anything I can do to repay that, anything I can do to bring you comfort in this moment, kiss your neck, scratch your back, rub your feet, whatever it is, I'm here for you. And I lean in to give her the tiniest, softest kiss on the back of her neck, so gentle, like a physical whisper. And she leans over her shoulder, makes eye contact with one eye, like a shark would. And yells in my face, and tickle me fancy. She caressed me, downed me in my childhood bedroom on the day of my grandmother's funeral. I don't know what they call that wherever you live, but where I'm from in Boston, Massachusetts, we call that a keeper. I wanted to propose right then. I really did, but I held off. I waited the next day. I went out and bought the Spanish Rosetta Stone, and I'll propose when she learns all the Spanish lyrics to that song because I will be damned if I marry a woman who doesn't know all the words to our wedding song. Josh Gondelman, his comedy album, Physical Whisper, is out now. And folks, that concludes this all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download. Uh, Thanks to our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate producers, Krista Ripple and James Kim, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, intern, Emerald Douglas, and our engineer this week, Brian Allison. And do subscribe to our podcast, where you'll get not only our regular episodes, but bonus podcast-only shows. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you next week. Bon appétit.